Hello Canada and the rest of the world and welcome to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix. I'm your host Dylan Clarkmore and today we're going to be talking about Back to the Future Part 2, which is currently available on Netflix in Canada. Today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. The Netflix podcast is a proud member of the Electric Streams podcast network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into it, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. One, this conversation will likely contain spoilers for Back to the Future Part 2. As well, some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into it. here today with a guest you've heard before whether it's from his last time here on netflix talking about peewee's big holiday or on his own fantastic podcast hold my order terrible dresser i'm thrilled to be back talking with rob mcdougall welcome rob hi dylan it's good to be here start you off with the same question i ask everybody is there anything cool you've been watching on netflix recently let's see well we just i just finished watching glow um uh, just you know, to continue my brand of being stuck in the '80s, I guess uh, one day I'll one day I'll talk on a podcast about something that's not about the '80s or made in the '80s or from the '80s. But that that day is not today. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but I, I really I I enjoyed Glow a lot. It was uh, um, you know it was slight. It wasn't uh, demanding. Probably. Some of the characters are a little bit thin beyond the main characters, but uh, um, I think it was like the perfect thing to put Mark Maron in. And it just had a fun, low-rent, homely, let's-put-on-a-show kind of vibe. It's actually, uh, come to think of it, it, it's sort of reminiscent of WKRP for me, of WKRP in Cincinnati, the show that I have a podcast about. Um, you know, not in a literal way, but in that, in that let's-put-on-a-show kind of vibe. Oh, that's fun. Speaking of Glow, and I guess it's it's sister show. I just finished watching the latest season of Orange is the New Black. Oh, we're, yes. We're always way behind on yep. everything. Um, but we managed to avoid spoilers and everything, and it was, a, it was a satisfying season of television. I mean, nothing really stands out as being an enormous, memorable moment, but it went to some interesting places. That might be what they're good at, what they're, what they're good at <laughs> producing is that show that, you know, you can just put it on and, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I have friends asking me when I'm going to get around to watching the, you know, the new Twin Peaks. And I just like, I don't know if I can commit to like 18 hours of impenetrable strangeness, <laughs> you know, but if I know that oh, this is going to be satisfying in 40 minutes, then there's something to that. Yeah. I do worry sometimes with Orange is New Black, and I think this is probably a whole other podcast about just... Kind of what sort of responsibility you take on when you start talking about issues like race and the prison industrial complex and yes. like sure. how 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 responsible it is to you know 
play some of those things off as jokes, but as, then I also realized jokes. you know there's some and, camp going on there where yeah, you're having and, fun to make it less scary. Yeah, and the subject matter is not as dark, but Glow has exactly the same issue because that's uh, you know. 1980s wrestling and the all these wrestlers are creating their personas and the personas are all racial and ethnic stereotypes and right. you know they sort of like groan and roll their eyes but the show is still having fun with how awful these stereotypes are right. and so you kind of have to decide how much of the benefit of the doubt you want to give the show's creators i think mm-hmm. And speaking of exaggeration and, in some cases, stereotyping, the other thing that I started watching was uh, they added season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race, oh, okay. which is a phenomenon I'd been hearing about for years and never, I just kind of brushed it off as being another reality show about uh, fashion or uh, whatever, but it's so engrossing and so it? entertaining. <laughs> I just, I love it. And you have a real love-hate relationship with everybody that yeah. changes on an episode-to-episode basis just because of, like, the... Uh, how the editing is done like yeah. i'm not gonna say it's a, a mastercraft of television or anything like that but it for me as probably one of the the least marginalized people in the <laughs> world it's it's a really interesting thing to get insight into especially yeah. coming from you know a voice that has as much authority as rupaul as Rup- that, that's that's kind of cool maybe i have to check it out i think you'd know pretty much right if you watch the first episode <laughs> you're not <laughs> into it then yeah. you're probably not going to change your mind by watching more and then the last thing was I started watching a movie for a new project that I'm not really quite ready to announce yet, but I watched mm-hmm. the movie Step Brothers. So I won't say anything more about it, but hopefully soon you'll be able to hear me talk a little bit more about that movie. Exciting. Speaking of movies, the movie we're here to talk about today, this episode, is from the year 1989 from director Robert Zemeckis. We're going to be talking about Back to the Future Part 2. As always, I want to introduce the movie the same way that Netflix does. First, when you hover over the title, it says, Doc and Marty are back. And this time, they have to travel to the future as well as the past to prevent a bleak reality. Well, I guess that, you know, they could have just stopped it. Doc and Marty are back. (laughs) That's pretty much the whole selling uh, proposition of this film. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I I feel like Netflix often leans a little too much on people kind of knowing about stuff like uh last time i guess the episode hasn't come out yet but i was talking to caroline about the crucible and the description was just like it's an adaptation of the play and so me having not seen the play was just like what play what's going on yeah the, well there's a whole range because a lot of stuff on netflix you've never heard of but i can't imagine many people are coming to back to the future 2 without right, <laughs> without a real sense of the platform or the the franchise and when you click on the title, the description changes to Marty and Doc are added again in this sequel to the 1985 blockbuster as the time-traveling duo head to 2015 to nip some McFly family woes in the bud. Which I think is a little bit more comprehensive. It gives you a little bit more if you're... It, it, it does give you a little bit more. It, then that's what the movie seems to be that it's going to be about. And they kind of give up on that plot line about 20 <laughs> minutes in. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that at least that's the premise of the first 17 minutes. Well, this movie is not afraid to leave <laughs> threads open. <laughs> no. The genre's Back to the Future Part 2 belongs to, according to Netflix, our action and adventure, classic action and adventure, adventures, and children and family movies, and it's described as both exciting and feel-good. So normally I ask why the guest picked the movie they did. I actually believe I've presented the idea in the first place <laughs> as a I'm not sure whether this is a joke or not 
it was a uh, pretty fresh off of the inauguration and uh i think i left it as a comment on one of your episodes notes that like hey they just added back to the future part two you want to talk about trump and then uh and then i invited <laughs> you back to do something else and you were like you know what yeah let's <laughs> let's talk about trump let's i know La- so. after my last appearance on this podcast i said well next time let's do something smart and not some dumb 80s thing <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and here we are yeah well a funny thing happened as as you alluded um you know, I don't know if everyone listening to this podcast knows, but last November there was an election in the United <laughs> States of America, and uh, um, this petulant, evil, racist, orange, seventy-year-old uh, boy king was uh, installed as the president of the United States, and now American democracy is collapsing. And uh, I don't want to say that Back to the Future Two predicted this apocalypse i want to say that it kind of caused this apocalypse and uh or at least that it that it uh the release of back to the future 2 in 1989 i think marks the death of the future the end of democracy and freedom and justice and and all those things and i just i feel like the more i think about trump and the election i see uh this symbiosis synergy with uh, this misbegotten Back to the Future sequel. So I, I realized I did have plenty to say about it. So if you had a DeLorean, you would go back to 1989, and that's where you would go to change everything? Yeah, well, there's lots of lots of possibilities. But yeah, I'd go back to, you know, 1987 or whenever Zemeckis, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis were working on the sequel, and that's what I would go back and change. Well, I under- my understanding, too, is that it wasn't even Zemeckis that wanted to make this movie. It was the production company or uh, Bob Gale or whoever it was who were just... And they're like, well, this made a ton of money. We got to do a sequel. And like, I, I, the original ending to Back to the Future was meant to be a final joke, where it was roads. We don't need roads. Yeah. Right? Sorry for misquoting a beloved quote. But then Zemeckis eventually decided that, well, if you are going to be doing it, I would rather at least I be able to have a say in how it goes uh, instead of it just being this uh, cash cow machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that explains a lot. This. This movie is might it seems a bit like a movie made by somebody that doesn't want to be making it. All right, so do you want to dive right into what you talked about, or should we ease into that? Maybe ease into that. Start okay. with the movie itself, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I don't think either of us love this movie, uh, Dylan. It, it's garbage. I mean, it's, it's pretty it, terrible. <laughs> we, we, we can't beat around the bush. And I know that you know, Back to the Future is a beloved series, but really, all that love comes from the first movie. I think. I don't. It maybe maybe we'll get some emails, but uh, I don't think there are any deep Back to the Future two fans out but there. But I think there are. I mean, I was looking at the. I mean, like the the Rotten Tomatoes and the Metacritic scores yeah. are they're around like the sixty percent. Okay. Um, but the user scores are up towards the eighties, yeah. eighty five. I think yeah. Empire called this one of the best, the hundred best sequels of all time. Ooh. Um, so I mean, there there is this love for this movie that I think is really misplaced. But that's also, I mean, for me, the, the last time I tried to watch the original Back to the Future, I didn't feel like it held up either. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I mean, to talk, to, to call back to the conversation that I had a few weeks ago with Edward and Jason and Chris about Star Wars The Force Awakens, right. I kind of feel like Back to the Future is not a, a doppelganger, like a like a shadow twin of Star Wars. Uh-huh. 
in that there are these really lasting elements. Yeah. But they don't hold up yeah. when you're looking at them when like when we're talking about Back to the Future. Like it's it, maybe it's because it hasn't been updated or what, but I mean like there's the DeLorean, there's some of the quotes from the movie, especially in Back to the Future Part Two. There's the props that people really remember fondly. But just watching the movie again is a it's a chore. It 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 is yeah. It is a chore. Um boy, where do you start? There's uh you know what I noticed watching it this time is that you know, I knew that I We'll talk about the premise. We'll talk about the plot, which I think is awful. But Marty is awful. This is what I was sort of shocked to realize is that, you know, Michael J. Fox is so likable. And he, uh, you know, he made everybody like Alex Keaton. Like, that's the sort of a mark of how, of what a sort of charming, you know, this this low-key Canadian charm. He's so likable that it conceals the fact that Marty is just... I mean, the best thing you could say about him is that he's totally bland. But protagonists of movies are supposed to want something. They're supposed to learn. They're supposed to change. They're supposed to grow. Marty doesn't do any of those things. I mean, he's just this sort of dude who reacts. And, you know, in the first movie, he vaguely wants to be a rock star and, you know, wants a cool pickup truck. But that's about as far, it wishes his family was less uncool. That's about as yeah. deep as his motivations go. And in this movie, he, he doesn't even have that. He, you know, he's got this girlfriend who he leaves in an alley uh, and then 20 minutes later leaves on a porch in this terrible neighborhood, like, like twice in the movie. That shows how little the movie cares for this character uh, as they just sort of like, knock her unconscious the first chance they get and drop her in an alley and then do it again. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. just hijack for a second, do you know why that was, apparently? Well, it's a different actress. Is that the... Well, it's... A, yeah, I mean, they brought in Elizabeth Shue, who, yes. I mean, if you want to listen to me gush about Elizabeth Shue, go back yeah. to the Adventures in Babysitting episode. I'm just plugging so much yeah. Netflix yeah. stuff. It's great. Um, so, I mean, like, she could have done something, but the yeah. problem was that they, they felt like they'd written themselves into a corner because of how they ended the how first Back to the Future, the first... because Jennifer got in the car. Right. So then they were like, well, we don't want Jennifer in the car, so they have to figure out some way to write her off. So yeah. instead of including her in the adventure, yeah. they just dump her in an alley. No, no sense in trying to include Elizabeth Shue or uh, Claudia Wells in the adventure. Let's let's just let's just write her off. Well, they, I mean, I could see they were in a corner from that final scene, which I thought was a great final scene, but... Yeah, the writerly problem of maybe they were in a corner, but there's there's better solutions than knock her unconscious. Or for that matter, I mean, so many things missing from this movie that were in the – there's no Huey Lewis. There's the first place they went wrong. <laughs> but then there's no Crispin Glover. And I actually think that that's a huge loss, that that, that George McFly is a, is a really big part. George and actually uh, George and Lorraine – um, are a really big part of what make the first movie work when it does and as well as it does. And Crispin Glover has this wonderful, pervy intensity. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I guess the story is just that there were money uh, issues. That, you know, they couldn't agree on how much money to pay him. And I know that he's a tough dude to work with or deal with. Later, he said that he didn't do it because he didn't approve of the message. I don't think that's true, but I actually like you know, because of how I feel about this movie. I kind of want it to be true, want it to be true. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so they so they write him off and then f attempt to get away with it by just having 
you just see him through the door or in the future he's upside down he's just hanging upside down like this other actor is hanging upside down with prosthetics on his face so that you won't notice it's not Crispin Glover um, and there's just something about how the world shrinks uh, that the first one this gets to why the plot is sort of rotten I think that Back to the Future 1 is you know it's it's about meeting your parents and it's got this kind of like mythic, uh, you know, that's that discovery that, you know, your, our parents are mysteries to us, right? Like they're, they're sort of the, the most familiar people in our world, but half of their life, half of their life is unknown, right? Is just, and, and the idea that they have their own identity, that there was a time when they weren't our parents, that they were sexual, you know, those things are all like really weird things that are hard for us to think about, but are kind of like powerful and, and neat to think about. And that's what the first movie is about, is about him confronting that. I mean, most sort of obviously in the whole kind of Oedipal titillation they have with, uh, um, with Leah Thompson as, as his mother. And the movie gets a big charge out of those two performances, out of Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson as his parents not being how Marty thinks his parents should be. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the podcast, I Was There Too? No, I don't know this it's one. A, it's a Matt Gorley's podcast. I believe it's on the Earwolf Network. It's a great premise for a podcast um, where this guy interviews what he calls the the people from the great scenes of cinema history. Ah. So basically he'll like talk to the people who are on the bus yeah. in speed. Okay, cool, cool. Or he did an interview with Newt from yeah. Aliens. Oh, nice. Right? So he talks to kind of the bit players or the people who are there in the big scenes who you probably don't remember their name. And he did a pair of back-to-back episodes with Tom Wilson, who plays Biff. Right. And then Jeffrey Weissman, who plays who George comes on to play George in the second in and third movie. movies yeah and i mean tom wilson speaks very candidly about how crispin glover and george mcfly was really the heart of the first movie uh, yeah. and that it's about i mean it's not marty that changes yes. it's george mcfly that changes yes. and who develops this courage and you know changes the future for the better right right he's the protagonist that's the it's a movie about this guy whose future son comes back in time and helps him become a better man and change his future. Right. And then Marty McFly is just the Ferris Bueller who gets us there. Yeah. That's, that's great that Tom Wilson sees that. Because I would say that each of the Back to the Future movies has a protagonist and none of them are Marty. So uh, Back to the Future 1 is about George. And Back to the Future 2 is about Biff. This, is a, this movie is all about Biff. He's not that interesting a character, frankly. I like Tom Wilson enough from other stuff that I kind of imagine that he like gives him hidden depths. But I, then I realized, oh no, you're just thinking of Freaks and Geeks, <laughs> where he gives the the gym coach hidden depths. Like I don't think Biff actually has hidden depths, but I do think, you know, Back to the Future Two really is about Biff and sort of Biff. You know, he gets to run the world, and then Back to the Future Three is really about Doc and Doc getting a family and and. Right. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so then, you, so you, you, you know, for whatever its strengths or weaknesses, the first movie has this classic, you know, mythic, literally mythic, like going back to Oedipus, uh, sort of storyline and, and, you know, the business with, well, you take Lorraine to the dance and then I'll come in and, uh, and, and pull you off her. And then it's, oh, a misunderstanding and the timing goes off. Like that's something out of. Like that seems like a Shakespeare play to me, like sort of like something out of Midsummer Night's Dream or Chaucer or something like that. Like, yeah, it's kind of goofy, but it's also, you know, it's a centuries old sort of pattern. 
And in the place of that, in Back to the Future 2, you know, what's the climax? It's a guy trying to steal a magazine. Like a guy trying to get a... The, the, the whole last third of the movie is Marty reaching around corners for the sports almanac. Yeah. That's, that's the thrilling climax of this film. Yeah, it seems like there is a profound misunderstanding of what worked for the first one. And that's coming from me, who doesn't mm-hmm. really care for the first one very much. But it was... Well, the kids are buying the Marty toys, so let's just let's pump up the Marty, and we don't need the, we don't need George. And yeah, I mean, largely it sounds like that was, and this is coming from Jeffrey Weissman's interview. Largely, it sounds like it was. I mean, there's debate depending on who you listen to about why the issues happened the way they did. Like right. uh, apparently, the studio though was frustrated with Crispin Glover in general for just being difficult to work with for being Crispin Glover, right? Yeah. So they offered him less than they offered Leah Thompson to come uh-huh. back. So then he was offended by that, and he turned down the offer so then they cut down the part to be even smaller and kept the offer the same so then he turned it down but then they brought in jeffrey weissman Mm -hmm. which led to a whole kerfuffle because now before this there weren't actually regulations in place about whether or not you were allowed to replicate somebody to replicate somebody that's um, right and and try to make it seem like they're in the movie when they're not yeah um and interestingly enough the the upside down thing Mm -hmm. uh i mean it's not totally clear but weissman speculates that He's pretty sure that that was actually in the script before. Oh, okay. Um, and it was intended to be just a difficult thing for Crispin Glover to do. Like it was a punishment for okay, you're gonna you're gonna rake <laughs> us over the coals. We're gonna do we're the gonna same. We're gonna hang to you. you upside. Yeah, we're down. gonna hang you upside okay. down for this whole movie. So I mean, there's all these politics. Yeah. That end up compromising the quality of the movie. Sure. And then because sorry, because uh, George is still held in this revered position. Yeah. In the movie, you know, yeah. Marty's devastated when he's gone. He just, you know, my, my father was a great guy. How could you possibly marry Biff? Right, right. But it's not earned in this it's movie not, at all. Absolutely. It's not earned. He's just this absent sort of thing to be conjured with. Yeah, the, this sort of, you know, melodramatic scene at his grave. I don't know why Marty has to actually go to his grave, except that it's like, you know, <laughs> again, it's out of, uh, you know, uh, Christmas Carol or something like that. But just the sort of the way the world shrinks even further by the time you get to Back to the Future 3, well, even in this movie, uh, so Michael J. Fox plays his own children in this movie, right? Michael J. Fox plays Marty's son and daughter, which is, you know, it's just a visual gag. But then in Back to the Future 3, he goes back in time and he plays his ancestor, right? And uh, basically, like, you know, I said before, the first movie is about the discovery that your parents are actual people, individuals with lives of their own. But by the time we get to the third movie, the sort of logic of contracts and Michael J. Fox's stardom means that his whole history is just, it's like reflections of himself. You know, Marty's whole lineage, the whole McFly lineage, is it's just like looking in a mirror of a mirror. It's just Marty, 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 and... He's married, his ancestor is married to Leah Thompson, so it's Marty, Marty, Marty banging his mother all throughout history. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's sort of, like, it, it goes from this sort of, you know, your family is its own rich entity with it, their own lives to this narcissist slash Oedipus, very shrunken adolescent view of all of history is just a reflection of you. I started to talk before about why the legacy of this movie seems to, I mean, depending on who you listen to, but I mean, fans still seem to speak highly of this movie. And I think it does have a lot to do with 
maybe the experience of watching it for the first time as you know a young teen or something. Yeah. Or maybe it's just the gimmicks in it. Maybe it's you know the shoes and the skateboard and whatnot. Because the other thing that uh, Tom Wilson talks about is he basically built a career after Back to the Future in talking about while also not talking about Back to the Future. Uh-huh. Because people would approach him and be like, what was it like to be Biff? And it eventually got to the point that he wrote a song that <laughs> yeah. was just answering everybody's questions yeah. about that they were that people would always ask him about being in Back to the Future. About being Biff. And then people would start coming up to him and be like, hey, I saw your song on YouTube. Also, I have a question for you. So eventually, <laughs> he, he, I guess he's, he printed out postcards yeah. where he would have the answers to like the FAQs where he would just hand it to people, and if they still wanted to talk to him, then yeah. great. Otherwise, people would just kind of scan the card and be like, okay, thanks. <laughs> so, I mean, it's become, I mean, it's the the people and the, the props and the images in this are bigger than the movie itself, I think. Like, they just yeah. they have this lasting persistence that has really stuck with some people that, I don't know if it's nostalgia or if it was just it hit people at the right time, which I guess is the same as nostalgia, but... yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, time travel is cool. Like, for me, time travel is cool. <laughs> sure. Like, we have to start there. I know there are people, you know, there are science fiction fans who will say, oh, I hate time travel stories because they get silly or they get preposterous very quickly. But I think time travel is just fun to think about. And this has got to be, you know, the most, the biggest mainstream time travel property there is if you don't count like Star Trek maybe which you know will use time travel or Doctor Who I guess but you know it's a short list like this is sort of this is like this is time travel for middle America this is time travel for everyone and didn't Carl Sagan praise it for its I mean if you're going to make a mainstream time travel thing like you could do a lot worse you could do worse and so you know if somebody likes Back to the Future 2 if what they might like is that of the three, it does the most with time travel. Mm. Um, it's the only one that goes in both directions, right? Goes in both directions and has the idea of, well, they, I guess they all have alternate histories in a light way, but this one really, you know, that's that's at the center of it is the journey to the alternate 1985, the Biff world, 1985B, um, the sort of dystopia that's been created. There's... Um, can I, is it okay if I nerd out about time travel? Good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I think that there's like, there's, there's really two kinds of time travel stories, basically. There's sort of time travel stories where time is fixed, where everything already happened and can't be changed. And there's time travel stories where time is changeable. So a fixed story is like the original movie 12 Monkeys or like kind of like a, all these Robert Heinlein stories from the 30s, 40s, 50s, where it turns out that the guy who gave you the time machine is you, you know, where everything already happened that way the first time. You understand what I'm saying? That you mm-hmm. can't change time. It's sort of what appears to be a paradox is resolved by the end and everything is fixed and everything already happened that way. And then the other kind of time travel story is one where time can be changed. And if you change the past, you will change the future. And that to me is a sort of really exciting, mind-blowing idea of time travel. And that's the sort of mythic wish embedded in, you know, well, what if I could go back? But most time travel stories are really depressingly timid and conservative with what they do with that. So they have this idea that, you know, one small change in the past will alter all of history. 
And then we get all these stories where the goal of the protagonist is to fix things, that history has been set wrong, and the goal of the protagonist is to restore the correct history, right? And that just seems like such a limited way to think about it, that, oh, well, the, the history that happened is the best of all possible worlds, and that this is the only correct history, that you have to fix things and set things right. And um, the first Back to the Future appears to be a story where he's trying to fix things and set things right, and, and a conservative time travel story. What I loved about it as a kid was, you know, that in fact he does change things and he makes his life better at the end. Now, watching, you know, thinking about it 30 years later, I see that the ways in which he changes it are sort of limited and conservative, that he, you know, by getting George to punch Biff, he restores, or not even restores, he makes George into a real man, essentially, and kind of George is then able to be a proper upper-middle-class patriarch. And, uh, and so, you know, like, the, like he changes history in a very Reagan's America way, like, you know, just <laughs> like, like, oh, you know, that he improves the world and they have a nicer house and Marty has a sweet pickup truck at right. the end of the movie. Nevertheless, I thought that was cool that it was like, yeah, that time travel, you know, it just, it blows open all the doors and anything can be changed, right? Then this movie, not only does it go back to, you know, you got to fix things and set them right, well, it's just confused in all sorts of ways. Like, um, they, I guess they did write themselves into a corner in that last scene. I love that last scene as an ending to the first movie. Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And the sort of excitement of that and the car, and the car flies. Um, but, uh, I mean, when you think about it, the doc says, you know, oh, the problem's with your children, Marty. Like, what's the rush, doc? Like, we got 30 years to fix this problem. Whatever it is it's much easier to change the future than it is to change the past. Like right. there's it just sort of as a, just in a purely logical sense, there's no rush. And again, in the first 20 minutes of the movie, apparently it's really important that Marty Jr. not, what is it? Drag race or no, not. He doesn't go along with doesn't the, go along the robbery. With, with the robbery. But like there's a million ways you could prevent that from happening. You don't have to prevent it on that day. And it kind of looks, you know, the vision we get of, Marty Sr.'s life in 2015, you know, is that it's not that great. And so there's lots of places where were you going to intervene to change the future? You know, like change something in 2002, change well, something yeah, in I mean, 1996. It, I mean, the movie even gives you one. Yeah. Right. Leah Thompson says, you know, if it wasn't for that accident, because someone called him a chicken. Yeah. And they don't do that. They go to the exact night. Now, I think that this is also Doc recognizing that time travel can have unexpected consequences. Yeah. And so he wants to get as close to the to the point as possible. Yeah. I think they're kind of trying to let themselves off the hook with that a bit. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Um, because he's like, now we need we need to get this done and then we need to go back and we need to dismantle this thing. We need to just stop this. This has been irresponsible. Right. Right. The doc is the doc is full of it though. For him to say on the one hand, it's irresponsible uh to meddle with time and then on the other but I've chosen this one moment in which we can meddle. Right. That's a, that's I mean that's the kind of Faustian bargain of time travel is uh, you know 
well, this is much too powerful to to let anyone to let fight, fall into anyone's hands. I'll just make this one this one little this when one, I'm done. This yeah. one <laughs> little change, and then I'll dismantle the. And of course, as we know, the time machine doesn't ever get dismantled. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, and that chicken thing—it's another ridiculous addition to this movie. Well, it's—I mean. I specifically didn't watch the third movie okay. just to, yep. to be able to look at this movie in a vacuum. I didn't revisit yep. the first one. I didn't watch the third one. Does the chicken thing get resolved in the third one? Because it is set up to be resolved yeah. that he should walk away from a fight with Biff at the end after Biff tries to taunt him into being a chicken. Yeah, they kind of pay it off, but they they pay it off in the same sort of broken, shoehorned in, last minute, lazy way that they do everything else. Like, first of all, this whole chicken thing doesn't come up in the first movie. There's no discussion. There's never mentioned that Marty has this uh, thing that he's going to go off if you call him chicken. I almost feel like somebody said, they heard what I said before about, oh, Marty doesn't learn or grow or change. And so, oh, someone read, you know, Robert McKee's story and said, oh, put in something where he can grow or change. But it's like, there's no backing for it. We don't know where it comes from. And then... Yeah, there is. I haven't seen three in a while, but he does, at the very end, a bunch of dudes show up in a car who we haven't seen before. They're not other characters in the movie, and they challenge him to a drag race, and he doesn't race them. So that is the payoff. But yeah. I, I imagine that part of that is because two and three were originally one script called Paradox. Okay, yeah. And so it kind of makes sense to introduce and then conclude yeah, something well, there, course, but then once you spread it into three movies, then... Yeah. Well, we haven't even talked about it. That's another way this movie is lousy, is that it just <laughs> ends, and then it includes, in the movie, it includes a trailer for Back to the Future 3. Yeah, so I was reading about this, and I guess in the original theatrical release, there was this trailer. I remember and then it. In, I was there in the theater. And then in home movies... At first, and in on cable there was, and only recently have they started editing it out because I guess because it's so <laughs> because it's jarring, super, super obnoxious to have a movie that just ends with no satisfying resolution. A lightning bolt, literal bolt from the blue, strikes the time machine, disappears. Joe Flaherty turns up and says, "Hey, want to see a trailer for the next movie?" <laughs> and, uh, um, I mean, this another thing. Yeah, because I'm sitting there in 2017, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. that is offensively. It is. Oh. And and in 2017, we're more used to this than we were in 1989. Because in 2000, I mean, like, it's sort of like I was going to say it's a metaphor for, but it's not a metaphor. It's the actual thing of you know, sort of modern franchised entertainment where nothing stands on its own. Everything is just sort of synergy and an ad for something else. Back to the Future 2, I mean, it literalizes that in that the last third of Back to the Future 2 is, in addition to trying to steal a magazine, is Marty crawling around backstage of Back to the Future 1, like crawling around the outside of the climax of the earlier, better movie. And uh, <laughs> that's like a metaphor for like so much of culture nowadays. It's like, oh, we, we can't change the original movie. We'll just crawl around the outside and then we'll give you an ad for the third movie. Which, I mean, we have, I mean, we have modern analogs to that where, I mean, we can't even finish off a franchise to a book series without splitting the last one into two. Right. Right? Because Breaking Dawn, the Twilight series, uh-huh. that was two movies. Harry Potter, the seventh book, was two movies. Mockingjay was two movies. Yeah. We, like, we just can't let things go. We have to squeeze as much as possible out of it. And Back to the Future, 
it becomes what it makes fun of because they have that bit in the future, and maybe this is a good transition to talk about some of the future stuff, yeah. because they have that scene, and it's supposed to be a joke. Like, isn't it ridiculous how many sequels they're making where they say Jaws 19? Yeah. But then yeah. that movie ends with a trailer for with the next movie in the franchise. A trailer for the next movie, yeah. They're like, oh, Jaws. And, I mean, Jaws, of course, is Spielberg, and this movie... I mean, it doesn't have Spielberg's magic touch, but it's made under his aegis, right? right? Like he's a producer or something like that. So they're, yeah, they are mocking themselves. I, I don't mean that in a kind of like, oh, that makes it okay way. No, I see that like exactly that there's sort of a blindness to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, self-awareness can only get you so far. At some point you have to change what you're doing. Uh-huh. I was looking at that Jaws 19 thing and I was like, oh, that's silly. But then I looked at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and we're up to 16 movies in that sucker now. <laughs> yeah. Like Infinity Wars, which has been announced and is planned and has release date, that's going to be the 19th MCU movie. We're actually going to have a franchise that hits, 19... hits that choice number. They should, they should be obliged to include the number just, just to remind you of how bankrupt they are. I guess, I guess there have been, what, 25 James Bonds, but that's the only other, that's the only thing I suppose that that's true. matches it. Yeah. You know, and they could, if they want to like have some complex numbering system, like, oh, this is, you know, Marvel movie 19B or whatever, <laughs> they could do that. Okay. So what else, I mean, since we're already in the future with Jaws 19 and whatnot, I think that I mean, Zemeckis apparently was reluctant and didn't want to go into the future in yeah. this movie mainly because of the possibility of embarrassment of getting the future wrong. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, it uh, it makes sense that he didn't I mean, this looks like a movie made by someone who didn't want to make a movie but the future, like I said. <laughs> but, you know, just maybe if that's how you feel, you shouldn't make Back to the Future. You shouldn't make a movie called right. Back to the Future. I mean, I I always assumed that great scene at the end of at the end of the first movie, like I, you know, I saw that as a kid and it was thrilling to me, you know, roads where we're going, we don't need roads. And like the flying car, like when, you know, it's become a cliche, but when people talk about, you know, uh, certainly when people my age talk about feeling let down by the future, you know, by the ways in which real life has not lived up to the sort of dreams of what we thought, how society and how the world would change. What do we say? We say, where are the flying cars? Like the flying car is like the archetypal right. thing. You know, we could call for Mars colonies or teleportation or single payer healthcare or something like that. But no, it's, you know, the, the yeah. flying car is a bit of a tangent, but I was exact 10 years after Back to the Future 2 came out, 1999, I met a girl, was out on a date with her, and I was, in 1999, we were all saying this shit. All of us Gen Xers were saying, where's the flying cars? We're on the edge of the future. Where's the flying car? And I said that, and she said, well, flying cars, one thing, but where's the flying mass transit that's cheap and affordable and green, you know? And, and, and I married that girl because, <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Like the flying car is not, it's not about the car. It's about the sort of ability to imagine a better world, right? right? And so there's, we... there's even that, have you seen this Twitter meme that's been going around? It's like uh, us in the 1950s. In 2017, there will be flying cars. Yes. And then 2017 follows it up with like some shit product, like some... something that will scoop your dog's poo for <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. Or... Yeah. 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 And so, because that's what, Back to the Future, Zemeckis didn't have to worry about getting it right. His portrayal of the 50s wasn't accurate. I mean, the, the obvious thing to do, screamingly obvious thing to do in Back to the Future 2 was to have the future be a 50s vision of the future. 
flying cars and robot maids and, uh, you know, like the Jetsons kind of thing and have it be kind of sunny. And because that would that would fit thematically. You know, the whole vibe of the first movie is the more things change, the more they stay the same. That, that And nostalgia and futurism are not that different. Um, so set it in this kind of, you know, sunny, optimistic, utopian you know, Futurama kind of a place. It does, it can be utopian or not, but but set it in that sort of the future we thought we were going to have. Yeah. But not only were they could they not commit to that, they just weren't interested in it at all. And so the future that they give us is like, I mean, the flying car jumps and immediately is stuck in traffic. Like they they, they just they they just wreck the fun of the flying car right. immediately. They land, and the future is. Just the present with some dumb shit on top of it. Like the kids, <laughs> one guy has a colander on his head and the the other, I don't know if it's a girl or the guy in a Griff's gang is wearing like balloon animals on her head. Right. And, uh, and then within 10 minutes, they go into an 80s cafe, like sort of symbolizing like let this, well, let's turn back from the future entirely back into nostalgia. And I say this as a guy who has a podcast about WKRP in Cincinnati, that this is profoundly disappointing to me that they just like couldn't commit for like, you know, 10 minutes of screen time to let's imagine the future. Instead, oh, let's let's go to an 80s nostalgia cafe. I mean, it's such a disappointing future because, I mean, Marty has become what he worked so hard for his father to not be yes. in the first movie. Yes. Like, it's so mundane and bleak. And like you yeah. said, it's just like there's weird shit stapled onto people's clothes. Like, yeah. Doc is wearing a clear necktie. Yeah. And then Marty, in the future, you're supposed to know that he's like a super drone worker because he has two neckties. Two like, neckties. that's how low in the, yeah. <laughs> on the totem pole <laughs> he, he is, to, that he, he has, has to, to wear, wear two, two neckties. Yeah, and... and um yeah, you know, and there's like there's surveillance cameras and there's 20 channels. There's a big screen TV with 20 channels. Like I, I give them this, that there are ways in which they got the future right. Yeah, being able to pay for your cab with a fingerprint. Uh, right. But they, the reason they got the future right is because they didn't give a shit and they didn't plan it out and they didn't have a vision for the future. And that's like, unfortunately, that's kind of how the future that comes along is you yeah. know um and so like even before we get to biff's dystopia it's a horrible vision of the future yeah because doc brings marty to the future and says we have to change this one moment and that'll make sure that everything goes better but you're looking around and you're like no change everything change everything. this is awful and that it's I, so ugly too it's, it's horrendous yeah, to look at right and and yet it's weirdly familiar right so like because yeah. when, when the real 2015 rolled around of course there were all those memes about you know, even in fact, earlier people were impatient for it. Memes about like, oh, today is the day that Marty traveled to in Back to the Future, and uh, you know, and and people comparing 2015 to 2015, and we don't have hoverboards and we don't have flying cars, but it's it's not that different. But all the ways in which it's the same are like all the shitty ways. Like it's yeah. sort of you know, it's <laughs> just the kids spend all their times on screens, and uh, yeah, Marty's life hasn't worked out how he wants it. I said before, there's something mythic and powerful about the premise of the first movie. I think that, the again, the obvious premise of the second movie could have been, will you grow up to be someone who your 15-year-old self respects and admires? And if not, who's right? Like, you know, like, let Marty 
interact with his older self and confront sort of like, you're not what I wished for when I was 15. Well, listen, kid, here's the things that changed. And, you know, and and but instead, it's just a joke. They're like, oh, hey, no matter what you do, everything's going to turn out miserable. This is I know. I know. Oh, it's yeah, it's really it's demoralizing in all these ways. Perfect word. And we haven't even gotten to how. Trump rules the world or Biff rules the world. I mean, we've danced around it. So, I mean, let's talk about let's talk about Biff. Yeah. Let's... Yeah, okay. So this movie <laughs> you, you started off with some pretty bold claims about, <laughs> now you're gonna, about now the I, universe. Now so. I gotta now I gotta back that check. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. So um like I said, I feel like this movie is really about Biff. The first shot after the recreated scenes from the first movie, the DeLorean flies off into the sky and leaps into the future. And the next thing we see is Biff, 1985 Biff, coming from, you know, being waxing Marty's truck or whatever, to he sees the time machine take off. And we see this big, long shot of Biff, and Biff becomes the center of everything that happens. And then, of course, they go to... It's Marty's idea, actually. Another piece of evidence that Marty is the jerk. It's Marty's idea to to buy the sports almanac in 2015 and right. and use it to become rich. And then the real outrage is that Biff ripped off the idea. Is it Biff took his idea? <laughs> it's not yeah. even the the yeah. fundamental. Right, right. Yeah. But uh, then Biff steals the time machine from 2015, goes back to 1955, gives himself, gives his younger self the almanac and says, start betting on all these horse races and football games. And by the time we get to 1985, Biff is fabulously wealthy. And it's not clear to me whether he rules the world or he just rules Hill Valley, like because Hill Valley stands in for the world in these movies, you know. But, but basically... It's it's Biff's Hill Valley, and you know he's got this massive hotel casino, and he has forced Lorraine to marry him, and he, he sort of runs everything. And I don't know who spotted this first, but the writers of the film actually confessed that when they were imagining, well, you know, what would it look like if this lousy, you know, if this obnoxious bully got all the money in the world, <laughs> uh, when they were imagining that in 1989, they pictured Donald Trump. And so the Biff's world in Back to the Future 2 is sort of based on Donald Trump, the big gold casino. and With his name with emblazoned his, with right With his name it. emblazoned on it and everything. And him in the, uh, you know, the sort of gold hotel room and him in his finery posing in front of his own portrait. And the, you know, the sad alcoholic wife with the boob job. Like all these things, they're sort of like uh, riffing on Donald Trump. And so then when this film... You know, when in 2015 people started looking back at Back to the Future 2 and talking about what they got right and wrong in the future, people also were like, ha hey, it's like Donald Trump. Like, we're living in Biff's timeline. And then he became the president of the United States, and we are living in Biff's timeline. Like, this is, we are in the darkest timeline. Like, Biff has, <laughs> uh, you know, that this, that, that Marty failed. We are living in the alternate 1985 in which Biff Tannen takes over the world. Now, I mean, I went farther than that. I said this movie didn't just predict it. It, it caused uh, it. it. Caused it. <laughs> what I mean is, okay, so 
I, what I should say is that it prophesied it. Is that right? Prophesied it, prophesized it. The verb prophecy, you know, in sort of originally, in its original meaning, sort of conflated predicting and causing. That sort of that a prophet is someone who calls down a judgment from God. And so this movie sort of calls down this judgment. And uh, um, what I mean by this is, uh, you know, bear with me. Okay, the movie came out in 1989, November of 1989. And... I mean, 1989 was a hell of a year. Uh, it was a year of revolutions. November 1989 is the month that the Berlin Wall fell down. And, uh, you know, I, I feel this keenly because I was in my last year of high school. Uh, but 1989 could have been, you know, it was like 1919. It was like 1968. It was like 1848. It was a year in which it really did seem like history was up for grabs. That, you know, that we were waking up from the Cold War and that, you know, another better world was possible. Of course, also in 1989, you have the fall of the Berlin Wall, the peaceful, the victory of this peaceful, nonviolent, popular up uprising against communism, against in the Eastern Bloc, in Russia, in the, in the, East, in the Soviet Union, in the Eastern Bloc, brought down by its own people peacefully, which is certainly one of the most amazing and hopeful events of my lifetime. Of course, in the summer of 1989, you also have, you have the same kind of a movement in China, um, the uh, now we remembered as Tiananmen Square, but it was much bigger than Tiananmen Square. It was all over China. Young people were rising up and demanding democracy, demanding social democracy. And they built this statue in Tiananmen Square that looked like the Statue of Liberty, but they called it the Goddess of Democracy. And I will get back to, to Back to the Future in a second. But the, the reason that that conflation of liberty and democracy, I think, is... It, striking because we, I, I mean Americans when I say we, Americans often are confused as to what it is that the rest of the world admires about them, whether it's capitalism or democracy. And they were perhaps confused over what, we were confused over what we were fighting for in the Cold War. When the Chinese government decided, you know, that history was getting away from them and that they had to crush this uprising, you know, they sent in the tanks, they killed their own grandchildren. They were, you know, shooting their their children, these young people, killing these young people in Tiananmen Square. Time travel stories are always about killing your grandfather, but it's much more likely that your grandfather will kill you, um, historically speaking. These evil old Chinese mandarins, you know, killing their grandchildren, and they said, well, the West will never stand for this. They, you know, they, you know, they won't allow this. And the Chinese Kremlin, I don't know what to call it, said, you know, the West has a short memory. They will forget. They won't fight for democracy. They'll fight for capitalism, but they won't fight for democracy. And, you know, 30 years later, like, you know, it took Russia 10 more years to figure that out, that they could be, you know, that they could be capitalist without being democratic. And now the, you know, the warlords that run Russia and China have installed Biff Tannen as president of the United States. And uh, like, who can say that they were wrong? What also happened in 1989 then uh, I think of as the 1989 thing, is uh, Francis Fukuyama published this essay called The End of History. And when I was in university then, I was constantly being asked to read this essay by history professors who would sort of chortle, ha, 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 end of history, how, how ridiculous. But Fukuyama didn't say that history was ending. He said, it is no longer possible with the fall of the Soviet Union to imagine alternatives to capitalism. And like, if I had to diagnose our present ills, that, that would be a huge part of it. It's no longer possible to imagine a better world than capitalism. 
Um, in fact, some people say it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. So we have all these dystopias, all these uh, apocalypse stories, but we don't, we no longer feel like we can commit to imagining alternative social arrangements, to imagining an actual better place, an actual better world. And so when these guys that made Back to the Future in 1989, making a movie about the future, kind of shrug and say, eh, and they can't quite bring themselves to imagine the future, and they retreat into this, uh, you know, into A, 80s nostalgia, and B, dystopia. Like, that to me seems like a metaphor for, I don't know, this kind of big cultural failure that has happened where we either cannot or are not allowed to imagine bigger and better real bigger and better futures. Right, um, we can imagine bigger and better TVs and bigger yeah. and better towers and casinos. And that's what we have. Yeah, we, we say, we, we spend all this time talking about, oh, technology's changing so fast. Look at, look at our smartphones. But I think that if somebody from 1955 came to 2015, they'd be like, yeah, cool phone, but you know, where are the flying cars? Where are the moon colonies? Why haven't we solved these social ills? There are still people starving in Africa. We keep telling ourselves that technology is changing fast, that the world is changing fast, but we don't really believe anymore that real change, real change for the better, is possible. So in that vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> we elect Anyway. Yeah. So right. So then we so we have you know we elect this you know death cult uh, into power, um, but the alternative you know the Democrats the other party are you know they're not a death cult but they are completely trapped by the limited horizons of late capitalism. That's sort of like the the mainstream moderate Democrats. The best thing they can come up with is just to make the capitalist system a little bit more humane a little bit, you know, a little bit nicer around the edges. You know, we have self-driving cars, but we, you know, we don't have good public transit. Like, there's just the sort of failures are uh, of of scope and scale are, you know, really, really depressing to me. Now, I don't want to end on a totally down note because I think that what I'm, what I'm calling for is that I think that we need to rediscover our ability to you know, be utopian and not be embarrassed to be utopian and uh, to have sort of like, you know, to the time travel. And so, you know, maybe people think it's weird that I'm getting all political here, but time travel is is inescapably political. Stories about time travel are going to be political. Um, H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine in 1894, the sort of first real time travel story. He was a utopian socialist. And The Time Machine was really part of an already existing genre of 19th century social science fiction in which people imagined either better societies or worse societies, and where they put them was the future. That's we use the future as a way to talk about how the world could be different. We use the future to talk about, you know, to imagine a different organization of society, to imagine a society that works in a different way. So when people throw up their hands and say, Ah, you can't. I can't imagine the future. It'll probably be just like today, but with some dumb stuff stapled onto our clothes. Like that is a that's a really sad, sad sort of failing. I want to like look for the silver lining. What I would say is that, um, you know, maybe if we recognize that we're living in 1985B, that we're living in Biff's timeline, like 
that this is the darkest timeline. It's not the darkest timeline, but it's you know that 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 history is broken, that it's gone wrong. Um, I don't mean that we should, you know, there's no there's no do over. Nobody has a time machine like the you know I and many people like me sort of compulsively re- hitting refresh on the Washington Post to see if Trump has been impeached yet. Right. Um, you know, like there, there is no, there's no get out of Trump world free card. It's not, there's not going to be magically corrected by, uh, by Marty McFly. Um, but, you know, we sort of like realize that the system is broken, that, that, that the place we are in is, is wrong, is, is not where we should be, and that we should be somewhere better, then we have you know, there's sort of two things we, want, we can do. One is sort of to do the small, slow, difficult work of, there's a Hebrew concept, Jewish concept called tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. To, to sort of through small acts of kindness and sacrifice, we repair the world. The idea that the world is broken, and, we, and it's our obligation to repair it. But then also I think you know, we have to, we have to teach ourselves to imagine better worlds again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have to, you know, to coin a phrase, we have to go back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that's corny. That's fine. That's fine. I think a, a little bit of lightness is appreciated. So do you feel like this movie till now, mm-hmm. let's say 1989 to 2017, that's our rock bottom? And now it's okay to start dreaming and start <laughs> okay, doing better. Start dreaming and doing better. Yeah, I think so. I'd like to think so. I, you know, of course I can imagine, you know, more bottomy bottoms. Like you can always get worse. But uh, yeah, why not start correcting things now? I remember after the, uh, right after the election, either after the election or after the inauguration. Anyway, right around that time, I started taking note of how many people talking about the election talked about time travel and talked about um, history being wrong and just realized that that trope was was everywhere, that sort of that, that really people did seem to have a sense that something had gone wrong. And somebody said something along the lines of what I was trying to say just now about Tikkun Olam and repairing the world said, you know, imagine that you are a time traveler from the future and start doing the things that you think are necessary to fix the world. And their point was like, yeah, we only have now. So now, you know, be your be the time traveler you want to see and start fixing the world now. But like 200 people answered that tweet by saying, well, I would have gone back a week earlier and you know changed the election, you know. But uh, the, the point was that, well, you can't go back a week earlier. You have to, you know, how, how can you fix things now? Yeah. You know, that's all that's all we've got, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, uh, I understand the temptation, right? Yeah. I mean, when the present looks really dark and you have this. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible that there's, for so many people, nostalgia for even the election and just how, uh-huh, and uh-huh. just how like, oh yeah, we got this in the bag. This is fine. Yeah, <laughs> everything's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah. So what I mean, you know, I think the that the big, you know, the fight on the left and on the circles I'm in right now, the argument is between the people who feel like things were basically okay on you know November fourth or whatever that, that that before the election basically things were okay and that then this calamity happened and the people who think no look a lot of things had already gone wrong that the immune systems had to be so compromised for this cancer to take hold that you know that the system was already busted in lots of ways and 
I could see both sides of that. The point is not that the system is irrevocably broken, but that, you know, again, there's not sort of we can't just find the smoking gun piece of evidence that makes Trump disappear. We have a whole lot of things that need to be changed and fixed and done better if we want there to be a, a better world. Just need to not look at Back to the Future Part Two for those answers. <laughs> no, no, we no. can do better, people. Yes, we could. Yeah, you, I don't think you will find the answers in Back to the Future Two. Yeah, well, on that sober <laughs> note, <laughs> I'm gonna cheat. <laughs> I'm sure when it goes through the edit on this, I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna latch onto the positive parts of this. But for now, it's... that's fine. All right, so we're going to wrap this up the same way that we always do, which is to assign this movie a rating and an MVP. So either thumbs up or thumbs down, now that the five-star system has been abolished, right. much like so many other social systems. <laughs> I don't. <That's, laughs> I'm like 0 for 5 in jokes today. No, I like to keep it. Yeah, an MVP. So somebody in front of or behind the camera who, I guess, since we both didn't love this movie, maybe redeemed it. Um, I'm also curious, did you happen to see what your match was for this on on Netflix now that they're doing their percentage matches? Oh, I don't remember. I think it was pretty high. Yeah, mine was 98. Yeah, yeah, I think it was high. So I think like people love this movie. People like this movie. So uh, what's your, your rating and your MVP? Thumbs up or thumbs down? And <laughs> is there anything salvageable? Um, thumbs up or thumbs down? Let me think. I'm going to say thumbs down. Down. Okay. <laughs> yes. Given that I no no of course thumbs down. I, I, I think world. I think it is uh, garbage. Um, uh, yeah. MVP. I kind of want to say Crispin Glover for not being in it, but um, for for getting out <laughs> while the getting was good. Um, I feel bad for Leah Thompson, who I think is great in the first one, yep. um, and who is just sort of cruelly misused in this one. They just, you know, it's boob job and, and a lot of cruddy latex on her face. But that doesn't make her the MVP. I think the movie focuses on Biff, but that doesn't make him the MVP. Uh, yeah, can I say Crispin Glover? Can I say the, <laughs> can I say the dog? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Crispin Glover made the best choice out of anybody. I still like the DeLorean. I mean, speaking of Leah Thompson, I just... In this movie, just the combination of Leah Thompson and Elizabeth Shue, I mean, this movie does, by the squeakiest of margins, pass the Bechdel test, but does only it? in a technicality because the two cops talk to each other about what they're going to uh, do, about whether or not they're going to yep. like bring Elizabeth Shue home. Okay. But the women in this movie are props or inconveniences, right? Yes, like, absolutely. Um, Elizabeth Shue is there literally because they couldn't think of anything better to do with her because of a mistake, a I mis- guess. Yeah, and so they- And then Leah Thompson is just, she's the prop to she's the the prize between marty's fight with biff right in this sort of oedipal fight with biff yeah the movie's already lousy in every other way so why not be misogynist and thoughtless about the female characters too (laughs) yeah yeah uh mine was thumbs down by default i guess i chose thomas wilson yeah yeah for biff um for most of the movie because I felt like where when Marty had his prosthetics on he was bouncing around through time it felt like that's Michael J. Fox with prosthetics on his face uh-huh. with Biff I felt more like it was the same character yeah. in different stages of his life yeah I see that I felt like he actually brought something to it the exception I'll give although I think this is probably more of a direction thing than anything else was Griff yeah because when I talk about the movie being just like ugly and awful to look at Uh the bullies in the future just like (laughs) they're so off-putting but not like they're they're just like 
they're so hyperactive and strange and yeah maybe that's how young people look to the old boomers making the movie they just assumed well kids are just going to keep getting more hyperactive and strange but i feel like when i watch movies from the 80s i'm often struck by especially not so good movies from the 80s like how much yelling there is like they're just sort of like everyone is always yelling at everyone else mm-hmm. and these guys are totally that it's just all you know well, yeah and I think I think I see what they were going for with it, with the whole. I mean, I, I guess I've been fortunate in that I've never encountered a movie version of High School Bullies, like that rove in a pack, and there's one big beefy one that yeah. does most of the talking and most of the punching. Um, although I guess when I talked about Heather's, I guess over a year ago now, I was informed that you know maybe my my experience wasn't universal, and that for some people these these bully groups were maybe a bit more realistic than I realized, but. I mean, I guess just the vision of that in the future yeah, was no, just they, so strange. Yeah, they just, right. They are, they're very much, they don't, I guess I also have escaped any real bullying, but they don't, you know, movie bullies are a thing. And these are just obviously movie bullies and unconvincing movie bullies at that. But updated in this weird, hyperactive, futuristic way. It's yeah. so, so strange to watch. Yeah, that the whole scene with the... Oh, everybody remembers the hoverboards so... Uh, like, everyone thinks they remember the hoverboards being so cool. And I found that scene completely underwhelming. Absolutely. The, the sort of the... I, I mean, I think the special effects were hard to do in 1989. But just, first of all, it's all exposition. The bullies are all like, ha, 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 McFly. As you know, they don't work on water. Right. <laughs> and, and then, but like, it's it's not like a high speed, cool chase. He just kind of gets on and putters across the little pond. Yeah. And then, like, there's like that pond can't be more than six inches deep. Like, why doesn't he just hop off? Yeah. And um, <laughs> well, that's that uninspired future you were talking yeah. about. That like, it's yeah. just take what we have and update it a bit. Put some shiny stickers on it. Put some racing stripes on it. That'll make it look sharp. <laughs> I do want to give credit, though, for in terms of a, a technical thing that they did. Whenever they had the same actor on both sides of the screen, I felt like that was convincing in yeah. ways that, like, I'm thinking of probably episodes of, like, Star Trek Voyager that didn't yeah. pull it off as well yeah. 10 years later. Yeah, I think they invented something new for mm-hmm. this movie to do that. And that might have been where a lot of their efforts were put. They invented some sort of way of moving the camera so that they could, like, record the camera's movements and film the two sh- scenes, you know, so that. It, you know, in the olden days, the sort of parent trap days, if you were going to have someone talking to themselves, there would they would it would you have to have a very static camera set up where one person is always on one side of the room and then the double is always on the other side of the room. And here they actually, yeah, they, that that was sort of a technical problem that I think they handled in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the one compliment I'm going to. There give you it. go. There, there you go, go. Zemeckis. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Rob, for doing this. Um, Oh, thank you for having me. I hope I didn't bum everybody out too much. Well, maybe people need a good bumming. No, (laughs) that's not what I wanted to say. Well, if they do, they can watch Back to the Future 2 on Netflix. Um, So where can people find you? Because I assume that there are going to be people who want to continue this conversation (laughs) with you. Well, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Well, I'm I'm online at uh, on the web at uh, robmcdougall.org and then my podcast, uh, Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser, is for somebody who's talked so much smack about 80s nostalgia today, uh, it's a podcast that looks at the 70s and 80s through the lens of the classic sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. And you can find that online at holdmyorderterribledresser.com 
or find me on Twitter. I, I am at Robotnik, R-O-B-O-T-N-I-K, and you can find everything else from there. Right. And for whatever it's worth, I have no idea what the demographics of my podcast are, but for anybody who is thinking like, oh, I've never seen the show, um, I say this, I think, every time that just listen to Hold My Order, Terrible Dresser, you will absolutely get something from it. It's two insightful guys talking about history just through the lens of a TV show. You, you don't need to have seen the show to be able to get a lot out of it. So uh, check yeah. that out. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Rob. This has been great. Thanks, Dylan. It's been fun. That's everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. The kinds of things you can find on today's show notes are varied and interesting. First of all, I link off to some different media that we talked about on the show. First of all, episodes 55 and 56 of uh, the excellent movie podcast, I Was There Too. Those are the interviews with Tom Wilson and Jeffrey Weissman talking about what it was like to work on the Back to the Future trilogy. I've embedded Tom Wilson's song about being asked the same questions over and over again about what it's like to be in the Back to the Future franchise. As well, there's some links that came to me by way of Rob after the fact that are all very appropriate further reading and further listening to the conversation that we just had. First up is a podcast from Innovation Hub with author Corey Doctorow called A Hopeful Look at the Apocalypse. Next up is a 2012 piece from The Baffler looking at the economic and social factors that have led to our stagnant pessimism when it comes to the future. That piece is called Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit by David Graeber. And lastly, probably my favorite one, is a recent Think Progress piece detailing how crumbling institutions and a fear of death allowed for Trump to take power. That piece is called Donald Trump is an Ambassador from the Abyss by Ned Resnikoff. I also link off to five other episodes of this show that we referenced over the course of the conversation. So that's episode number 45, Adventures in Babysitting with Deanne Condrat, a bonus episode where I talked to Deanne Condrat, Ian Badger, and Vanessa Brown about Heathers, episode 59, which is the last time Rob was on the podcast, where he joined me and Caroline to talk about Pee-wee's Big Holiday, linked off to episode 71, Star Wars The Force Awakens with Chris DeHoog, Edward Platero, and Jason Gray, and episode 73, The Crucible, that's the last episode, with Caroline Deason. I've also included some handy Netflix and Amazon links for the other movies and series that we talked about, like Back to the Future, Back to the Future Part 2, Back to the Future Part 3, The Crucible, Freaks and Geeks, Glow, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2, RuPaul's Drag Race, Star Wars The Force Awakens, the Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Parts 1 and 2, Twin Peaks, and WKRP in Cincinnati. You can find Netflix on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod. You can also find me there at Dylan Clark Moore. And we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer, and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you. While you're there, drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. Even more importantly, be sure to tell your friends about what we're doing here. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign, whether it's for the rewards or just to see us keep doing what we're doing. 
you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.